welcome to One Step Ahead. My name is Alexandra Stahl and in this podcast I want to explore and make sense of the latest in our rapidly changing world. In the context of the previous invention of ChatGPT or DALI2, I wanted to discuss the possible challenges and benefits of the increasing use of artificial intelligence for us as individuals and specific industries. Also, the capital flowing into generative AI startups collectively raised 2.7 billion um, last year. So I would say the AI race is only just getting started. And I am very happy to discuss this and more with Professor Theodore Lechtemann, who had just arrived from Oxford's Institute for Ethics in Artificial Intelligence. But yeah, Professor Lechtemann, would you like to introduce yourself first and maybe tell us a bit more about your recent research work and what makes it so interesting? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, Alexandra, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Um, as you mentioned, I am Professor Theodore Lechterman. I am um, an assistant professor of philosophy here at IE University. And my work in artificial intelligence covers a variety of different areas. Um, so I've worked on some of the ethical and epistemic challenges of um, combating disinformation with AI. I've worked on the concept of accountability in AI ethics and governance. Um, I've worked on how to safeguard weaponizable technology from misuse. And I'm currently working on um, how we might um, improve democratic systems and processes using certain AI tools. So a variety of different things. Impressive. Thank you. May I ask you, why did you start researching how values apply when private and artificial intelligence exercise power? Yeah, so I am a political philosopher by training, and political philosophers for, well, uh, thousands of years um, have been focused primarily on the state, um, how to evaluate state power. Um, you know, when governments exercise power, what are better and worse ways of doing that? What can make power justified or legitimate? Um, but something that we notice, particularly in recent years, um, is that you know quasi-governmental power, or at least power over very important things, can be exercised by agents other than the state. Um, corporations, for instance, can exercise tremendous amounts or kinds of power that we might normally associate with the state. And even more recently, artificial agents may be able of making certain kinds of decisions about our common lives um, in ways that rival the state in certain ways. So the question for me has been, you know, in what way, if at all, do familiar principles from political philosophy transfer um, to some of these alternative exercises of power, or do we need different different principles to make sense of some of these phenomena. Interesting. I'm very lucky to have you here. Um, why is it essential, especially today, to question human judgment, the human judgment's role in our digital area? And could you please explain me the concept of humans in the loop? Sure. Um, well, the second question first, you know, there are different mm -hmm. ways of involving humans in decisions that AI makes. Um, we sometimes talk about humans being in the loop 
on the loop or out of the loop. Mm -hmm. So when humans are in the loop of a decision-making process, uh, a decision that an AI is making has to go through humans in some way. Humans have the opportunity to direct or stop a decision um, that AI is making. Um, humans are involved in a sort of more serious and integral way in mm. the decision-making process. When we say that humans are on the loop rather than in the loop, um, uh, humans have taken a step back from the decision-making process and sort of set the AI system on autopilot with the opportunity to intervene if they see something going wrong. Um, but really, the AI is in charge of making decisions about what happens. And then when humans are out of the loop, that's when humans are entirely divorced from the process. Um, so they're not involved in checking um, whether AI is making good or bad decisions. Um, and they're not involved in helping AI make those decisions um, in the first place. So those are three different ways in which humans can be involved or not um, in AI-driven decisions or AI-assisted decisions. And um, it's important um, to think about, you know, which one, if any, of these uh, modes is appropriate in a given case. Um, there may be certain kinds of decisions which uh, we don't necessarily want to outsource or delegate entirely to artificial systems um, because we don't trust them in some way or because we think that it's very important to be able to hold somebody accountable for those decisions and fully automating them doesn't allow us to do that. Or we think that you know, these systems can be misused or abused by powerful agents or agents with bad intentions. So it's very important for them to be accountable to people in some way. Yeah, interesting. And I think this is very important for the futuristic autonomous um, car industry, for example, or criminal justice. But we'll get into that later. Um, what is the difference between a weak and a strong AI? Do you have an answer for this one? Sure. Um, well, when we talk about weak AI, we're primarily talking about um, task-specific AI, AI that is programmed to make certain kinds of judgments or um, perform certain kinds of narrow tasks. And this is, in fact, um, pretty much all of the AI currently in existence and being deployed in our lives and in our societies now. These are forms of weak AI. Sometimes it's multiple forms of weak AI combined, a suite of mm -hmm. weak AI tools. Um, but this is more or less what we have. Um, in contrast, strong AI, um, sometimes called artificial general intelligence, would be capable of more complex reasoning and general problem solving um, in ways that um, are similar to or even superior than human intelligence. Oh. Um, so, I mean, there's some debate about, you know, how we draw this distinction and what kinds of things fall into each category, but I would say that most scholars agree um, that strong AI has not been achieved yet, and there's some debate about whether or when it ever will. Um, so uh, that more or less is the difference. I mean, one thing we might expect with strong AI that we certainly don't have with weak AI is um, a sense of morality, for instance, yeah. um, an ability to judge certain outcomes as good or bad, as wrong or right, um, and to guide itself in light of those judgments. Um, though, again, um, there may be different forms of strong AI and different ways of defining it. 
So you mean the awareness of being an AI, right? Or sure, self-awareness as well might be something we expect. Interesting. So what I got from you is that AI systems can make decisions independently, right? Without human oversight or intervention, um, making it difficult to hold them accountable for their actions. And I believe with artificial intelligence evolving in our societies and economies, the need to revisit and update existing digital regulations that you're also working on is becoming increasingly apparent. Um, the debate around these reforms in the US, the EU and elsewhere, of course, um, touches privacy, transparency and free speech. Besides that, the dynamic between private firms and governmental oversight is very complex, while online platforms play an important role in our daily life. So. The US and the EU continue operating with regulations dating back over a generation. And as significant challenges regarding illegal and harmful online content via Twitter or other platforms and moderation liability continue to have real world effects today. The EU and the US are considering precedent setting updates. But my question would be, is there an effective way to ensure that AI systems are fairly regulated and controlled? Or to be more concise, is it even necessary to regulate artificial intelligence? Well, it's certainly necessary. Um, and I think you know, even people who uh, are skeptical about the need for regulation generally um, would agree that there are at least certain uses of AI um, that affect people who have not consented to that use. Um, and when we have these kinds of negative externalities on people, that's a very sort of obvious uh, justification for having some kind of regulation. Um, and certainly not the only one, but certainly one that I think that even people who are skeptical of regulation in other domains may be able to accept in the domain of AI. Um, when it comes to the question of is there an effective way um, to ensure that AI systems are fairly regulated and controlled, I think if I, if I had an, a, a good answer to that question, I'd be extremely famous. Um, I mean, this is a problem that I think, you know, basically every society is wrestling with right now. Mm -hmm. And there are different answers on the table. So some people have proposed that we need some kind of national agency to screen um, sort of more or less every algorithm, yeah. every application of AI, um, and uh, force it to pass some kind of test in the same way that we regulate medicine um, or food. Um, other people have proposed we don't need a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, centralized mm -hmm. agency. What we need rather is for basically you know, every existing entity to integrate some sort of analysis and evaluation and regulation of AI into its pre-existing systems. The thought there being that you know, AI is not some sort of discrete thing, but it's a really sort of general purpose technology, much like electricity is, yeah. um, and when it becomes so integrated into every part of our lives, um, uh, it just makes sense that you know everybody in some way or another has a responsibility um, and a capacity um, to manage it effectively. Um, but I think you know these are things that societies are are experimenting with in different ways, and we may see some different uh, versions emerging over the next few years, and an opportunity to evaluate you know which one is working well, which one is working poorly, um, and how different contexts might matter. Yeah, very interesting, and I want to mention something that 
makes my mind explode, which is that ChatGPT is not even OpenAI's best AI chatbot. So right now, OpenAI is developing the version of OpenAI's chatbot GPT-4. And you know, if you talk to people in Silicon Valley who work in AI research, they talk about this like it's magic. Like everyone who has seen ChatGPT-4, they come back as if they have just seen the face of God or something like that. And they talk about it as kind of this mystical thing. And you know, all of this is a rumor, of course, but people have been saying it's been trained on over 500 times more data than ChatGPT-3 is. And that is just much, much more sophisticated. So I think we are having a moment of societal awe and confusion and to be honest, also a lot of excitement about ChatGPT, but in some ways it is already a couple of years out of date. So when eventually, when next year ChatGPT4 or even this year, when Google might launch its AI this year, I suspect that I'll have this conversation again, but in a much more intense way because it is going to be that much better, right? Um, yeah, so at some point ChatGPT will replace me here as a wannabe podcaster, but um, I hope that I can publish a few more episodes before that. Yeah, we'll see. Um, now leading to another topic. So given that data has already been misused for political campaigns or marketing strategies in the past, what are your biggest concerns regarding our data protection now that artificial intelligence is being used increasingly and our data is becoming more valuable. So to be honest, my biggest concern about data protection mm -hmm. has to do with quantum computing. Um, you know, quantum computing is an entirely different and new form of computing that doesn't rely on binary code. Mm -hmm. um, it relies on um, quantum mechanics to uh -huh. be able to process information um, incredibly fast, much faster than any sort of conventional computer is able to process information. And if we combine quantum um, with other technologies like AI, we will have the capacity to do all sorts of really exciting, interesting, and dangerous things. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that you know quantum is predicted to be able to do is to uh, crack encryption um, quickly um, and at great scale. Um, so all of the you know passwords that you know we use to store data, um, whether on our personal devices or in the cloud, could suddenly become vulnerable really? to hacking um, by you know the first entity with malicious intentions who gets a handle on this technology. Um, so I think you know preparing for that possibility is uh, a very important priority. Um, and uh, I think uh, the fact that this is possible is something we should be worried about. Yes, and thank you for mentioning that because today's decisions and predictions refer to using data and algorithms, right? But there are concerns that these decisions can lead to injustice. So one example would be the criminal justice system where data and algorithms are used to predict the likelihood of a person committing a crime in the future. However, these predictions can be biased and may disproportionately impact certain communities, leading to discrimination or unfair treatment. For example, um, 
Suppose the data used to make these predictions is based on historical arrests and convictions. So in that case, it may create systemic racism and bias against people of color, as they are disproportionately represented in these statistics. And this can lead to unfair targeting and increased surveillance of these communities, resulting in a lack of trust and mistrust um, of the justice system. So, yeah, I don't know, considering my concerns, can you give us an example of how data-driven decisions can favor injustice? Or even better, how likely is this problem going to increase? Well, there are many examples um, of how uh, data-driven or algorithmic decisions um, in particular mm -hmm. can favor injustice. You know, you've mentioned the criminal justice system um, for one instance. Um, we can also think about uh, hiring algorithms, for instance, um, which you know, seek to determine whether a company should hire a candidate or invite a candidate mm -hmm. for an interview or promote a particular person at a company. Um, and often the training data used to program these algorithms comes from past decisions that the company has made, decisions that the company thinks has been successful. Mm -hmm. So previous people who were successful in getting hired or receiving an interview. Um, but if we look at the past data um, that companies have been using, in many cases, people who were more successful in those circumstances yeah. came from particular backgrounds. Um, they're more likely to have been white and male, for instance, oh. um, rather than people from other backgrounds. So, you know, if those are the sort of main positive examples in the training data, um, then the algorithm is likely to be trained to look for people with those characteristics and to doubt downvote or downgrade um, people who don't have those characteristics, therefore reproducing um, or reinforcing um, historical injustices in different ways. I mean, another thing we can talk about is how, um, you know, algorithmic decisions might um, withhold opportunities uh, from people in different ways. So, you know, facial recognition is much better at identifying, um, again, white male faces um, than faces of women or faces of people of color. Um, and this came up um, in some initial instances where people were using... Um, uh, facial recognition technology for various online game playing applications, oh, okay. and they found that um, you know black women in particular were finding it more difficult to play these games and have their faces recognized, um, and they wondered why this was the case. Um, so sometimes it's a case of you know the benefits of AI not being fairly available to people. Um, that's another potential instance of injustice that can be created by you know algorithmic decisions. And when it comes to this injustice, when you say that, for example, um, women with a darker skin color are not being recognized from an AI, do you think it's because the AI is trained on historical data, which recreates um, injustice? Or how does it work? How would you explain this? Well, I guess all data is historical in some yeah. way. Um, uh, I think I don't know exactly, you know, what the training data sets for these facial recognition databases are. Mm -hmm. I would imagine they're not um, uh, 
necessarily so much from the distant past, mm -hmm. um, but it really just sort of depends on how you're sampling data and how sort of careful you are to ensure that your data is representative uh, of the target population that you're seeking to apply, you know, these algorithms to. Um, you know, in terms of your question of how likely is this problem going to increase, yeah. um, I think, you know, the, the answer is likely to be mixed. On the one hand, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of this problem. Um, there are now, um, you know, at least certain regulations in place and a variety of different codes of conduct, voluntary standards, best practices, etc. Um, so that's all encouraging. Um, but I think the, at the same time, the proliferation of these tools um, throughout the world may expand faster than people's ability to understand and appreciate the risks of bias. So, um, and of course, you know, it's likely to be the case that many people who have access to this technology don't necessarily care so much um, about uh, the potential biases or injustices that may be created by the use of these tools. Um, so um, I think, you know, there are grounds for a little bit of optimism as well as grounds for significant pessimism. Interesting. Okay. Um, now we're getting into a topic that I've mentioned before. It's the autonomous car industry. Because this January, I saw my first self-driving car on the streets in California. And for the people who might not know this, California is one of the states which currently allows for t testing the autonomous vehicles under certain conditions. And I did a bit of research and I found out that, of course, higher levels of vehicle automation are expected to increase road safety by, for example, reducing traffic accidents and preventing them altogether. And another example might be that 94% of crashes are due to human error. At the same time, driverless technology can benefit societies by lowering carbon emissions and paving the way for more sustainability, basically. But in the event of a crash, ethical decisions have to be made, often putting people in a moral conflict. So in particular, we're talking about policymakers, car makers, and the public, because they must agree on compromises and their priorities among ethical considerations, right? Or an alternative might be a car program based on the driver's moral attitude when you buy it. And I had several conversations about how should a self-driving car react to avoid an accident or who would be even responsible for the accident. So can I ask you, in your opinion, what are the most important ethical considerations for the future development and the deployment of self-driving cars? So in my opinion, I think some of the most important ethical considerations are the ones that haven't received very much attention. Um, so there's been a lot of attention, especially in the philosophical literature, about crash optimization mm. um, and whose safety should be prioritized um, in certain collision scenarios. Um, and that's sort of philosophically interesting. Um, car manufacturers and others question uh, the extent to which you know, this is really a, a relevant set of concerns um, for a variety of different reasons. The thought being that um, there are actually going to be relatively few circumstances where a collision is actually unavoidable. Um, in most circumstances, um, you know, a car will be able to engage in some kind of evasive maneuver um, to avoid a collision. 
Um, and, you know, in, in that case, we won't need to necessarily make these kinds of difficult moral choices about whose life is more valuable or how many lives we should be trying to save. Um, and sort of the other concern here is that, you know, if a collision truly is unavoidable in the way that um, some of these discussions assume, then it's likely to be the case that the car won't actually have an opportunity to make a choice um, about whose life to prioritize. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, creates some challenges for the relevance of some of these kinds of questions. But when I think about, you know, what kinds of considerations really are relevant um, and are worth thinking more about, one of them is this question of who should you know, decide uh, all of these ethical choices about self-driving cars? How should we decide how car routes are optimized, for instance? You know, should cars always take the fastest route or should they take the fairest route um, if there's a difference between these two things? If the fastest route, for instance, involves going through the same neighborhood every time and that neighborhood is historically underprivileged, maybe it's unfair for cars to take always the fastest route through this same neighborhood, and maybe the cars should vary um, their routes in some way, which sometimes makes it inconvenient for the passengers, but nevertheless better for um, bystanders and neighborhoods and so on. Um, but, you know, for all of the different ethical dilemmas and ethical trade-offs um, that we face with self-driving cars, I think it's important to ask who should decide. Yeah. Um, how should power be distributed between car makers, um, between users, between affected communities, between governments? Um, I think that's a really important question and one that is often left out of the debate. Yeah, I think you made a really good point when you said that it's more important to focus into question um, on who has the power to decide how a car is going to drive or what um, ethical values or decisions can a car make and not. Um, yeah, so who might be responsible for an accident with a self-driving car then? Is there a clear answer yet? No, right? Well, it goes back to the sort of previous answer of, you know, who should make the decision or who in fact makes the decision about some of these trade-offs. So um, it stands to reason that if the passengers of the car are given the opportunity to choose its ethical profile um, and, you know, how fast it goes, its driving behavior, um, its sensitivity to pedestrians and cyclists and so on, or, you know, animals, um, roadside property, et cetera, um, then those people might bear more responsibility in uh, collision. Um, on the other hand, if more of those decisions are in fact made by the vehicle manufacturer or, or operator, um, then those entities um, might bear more responsibility in, in the instance of a collision. Um, and similarly, you know, if cars are sort of regulated by governments and these decisions are, you know, made um, by government agencies um, and less so by car makers and by users, um, then the blame might lie more with governments when these kinds of, uh, you know, instances occur. So I think, you know, a, a lot of this depends on how decision-making is distributed before uh, a crash or some kind of event um, for us to be able to say who's responsible in mm -hmm. a particular circumstance. 
Though there's, you know, a potential future scenario where cars are run by strong AI, uh, by artificial general intelligence, and the cars themselves really are the ones sort of making these kinds of decisions. And in those cases, um, there might be something to the idea that the car itself is responsible for certain eventualities. Um, But that's um, a more futuristic debate to have. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for the small excourse. Um, can I ask you to project the future now? So imagine yourself in 2030. What should be significantly different because of the revolution in our technologies and especially because of the invention in AI when it comes to your daily life and what you're researching right now? So I think, you know, in my daily life, I'm lucky to live in Um, relatively well-functioning societies Mm -hmm. where I think that some of the challenges with bias and explainability um, are improving. Um, And so I'm optimistic um, about, you know, regulation and enhanced understanding um, in some of the societies in which, you know, I reside um, for progress on some of these issues. I think we're also likely to see um, in the next few years sort of continuation of current trends. Many uh, of the products we use will become suffused by different forms of AI. Many of our routine tasks uh, will become more and more automated. We'll be using different versions of AI on our jobs. Um, and um, But I don't think... Um, you know, by 2030, we're going to see a sort of massive uh, replacement of the mm-hmm. workforce by AI. I think that's still a few years in the future. Um, and I also don't think that by 2030, we will have achieved true strong AI, um, artificial general intelligence. I think if that is even possible, um, that is going to be a future development. Interesting. So you mentioned that you don't predict a a big change in the workforce because of the AI, but I, for example, would say maybe not in the workforce, but probably in the skill set, especially when it comes to students um, or maybe even other professionals because AI is so helpful. Yeah, I can give you an example. Last week, I had a conversation with a classmate, and she is from Ethiopia, and I asked her to explain me the highly complex political conflict in Ethiopia just to get another perspective, and I was trying to understand it. And she gave me a really good answer, but she advised me to do my own research in order to make sure that I have an objective perspective. So I asked ChatGPT to explain me the Ethiopian conflict and ChatGPT was able to give me a very understandable answer and helped me a lot to understand the whole conflict with all the variables. And then I realized AI can make decisions based on a vast amount of data and give us all instant access to information or make personalized recommendations and even provide financial analysis, um, as we mentioned before. Or the AI concept Ali can even create realistic images and art from a natural language description. And because of that, I can imagine these tools discourage us, including myself, from developing our own creative and analytical skills. I think this might be a real problem. So can I ask you, 
what would you say, what are the most valuable skills students should adopt while facing the revolution of new technologies? Um, well, I mean, I think something I hope this conversation has brought out is mm -hmm. that there are a variety of ethical and philosophical challenges that new technologies present us with. And it's not sufficient just to have an understanding of how the technologies work on a technical level to be able to evaluate when or whether we should use these things, how we can program them in better and worse ways, and how we can manage some of the societal implications. We need alternative forms of analysis for this. We need some basic training and understanding in philosophy, in history, in social science. And I think, you know, more and more students are being being pushed towards technical skills to take advantage of some of the benefits of these two new technologies, and maybe at the expense of some of these sort of broader, more conventional skills in the humanities and social sciences, which I think are really sort of essential yeah. for using these tools well. So um, I guess my plea would be for you know uh, students to continue taking seriously the kinds of insights that they can get from the humanities and social sciences and how those insights might be valuable for making use of emerging technologies. Interesting. So you would say it's still important to have or to keep this human-in-the-loop concept to make sure that we use our understanding and ethical understanding in order to make decisions in future, right? Um, to be able to decide at least when we should take ourselves out of the loop, yes. Um, I think, uh, you know, training in, um, yeah, uh, social scientific analysis, in history, in philosophy, um, and in the sort of broader kinds of reflection that the humanities enable, I think is really essential for making those kinds of decisions. Thank you. Now, last question. Um, given your experience and successful academic career, um, what would be your number one career advice for your younger self? For my younger self? Yeah. Um, you didn't see this coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me a second. Well, I, I think it's difficult to give my myself, uh, my younger self, career advice. Um, But what I might say, um, you know, for anybody who is listening to this podcast and is interested in some of these issues, I think, you know, the field of quantum um, in particular is a field that's sort of wide open for exploration of the societal and ethical implications. There's been very little research on that so far, and I think the potential consequences are tremendous. So what I would recommend to your listeners is to um, you know, consider doing some more research in this particular area, because I think that's a very fruitful area for inquiry. Thank you for giving me this very insightful last piece of advice. And thank you for all of your answers and concerns and thoughts that you shared with me. This was very helpful and very interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.